0: I wanna invite the children to come up a little bit closer to your screens and join me for a special moment together. I'm gonna tell you another pretend story today. Once upon a time, there were three siblings, Maria, John, and Keisha. And they were doing school at home because they were in the middle of a COVID pandemic and it was time for the art lesson. And so their mom came in and brought them a bunch of different art supplies. And she said, I want each of you to make something. Do a piece of art with all these supplies that I'm giving you. I'm going to go in the kitchen and fix your lunch. And when I come back, I want to see what you've done. So John took his supplies and he liked the construction paper and some pipe cleaners and a little bit of glue and magic markers. Keisha took her supplies. She wanted to use some cotton balls and maybe some little Dixie cups and she liked paint so she was going to be using paint. But Mary looked around at all the different supplies and she got scared because she didn't think she was a very good artist and she was afraid if she tried something that maybe her parents wouldn't like it very much, or, or maybe her brother and sister would make fun of her, or somehow it wouldn't be good enough, or she just got too scared, and so she just sat there and didn't do anything. And so when the mom came back in, she saw that the first two had done a beautiful art project, but that Mary hadn't done one. And so she asked Mary, why didn't you do an art project? And Mary said, because I was scared you wouldn't like it. And her mom got down on her knee and said, "'Sweetheart, anything you do for me is beautiful, and I will love it.'" Jesus tells a parable, the one that we just heard, that's a little bit like that story. It's also different, but it's kind of like that story. And what I think Jesus is trying to say in the parable to us is that God wants us to try— to do our very best with what we have to love God and to love other people and to make the world a better place. It's okay if we're scared, but the most important thing is that we try. And God wants us to know that no matter who we are, no matter what, we can always do something to love God and to make the world better. Let's pray together. Dear God, Help us not to be afraid to do everything we can to do what is right, to love you, to help other people. Give us courage to be your people in this world. Thank you so much for loving us no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for listening. as I thought about the children's message this morning and and how to help those of you who are children to understand this parable, it seemed simple at first. This parable is one that, that many of us learned in Sunday school class as children. And on its surface, it seems simple and harmless. But the more time I spent with this parable this week, the more troubling I found it. There are some disturbing things going on in this parable, some things that I find rather troubling. First of all, the whole setup of the parable is about a master and slaves. And to use those terms in our day, in our context, in a society that has been so scarred by that sinful institution is troubling. And so... Though I will be using the terms master and servant throughout the sermon because that is where the parable leads us, I recognize that that is disturbing and troubling. The power dynamic in the parable overall is disturbing. There's a part toward the end that I find disturbing. When it says in the parable, To those who have much, even more will be given but to those who have little, even what they have will be taken away. That doesn't sound very much like Jesus, does it? Jesus who said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus who announced his ministry by saying, I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor. Who was constantly turning the tables upside down, lifting up the lowly. Jesus whose very mother sang before his birth, the Magnificat. Announcing that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. So, is this parable a celebration of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? How do we wrestle with that? And I'm disturbed by the ending of the parable, where this third servant gets tossed out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a final, terrible ending for this third servant who seems to have done nothing more than nothing. The parable, I think, invites us to look most closely at this third servant and what it was that he did or didn't do that brought on condemnation from the master. What did he do that was so wrong? Well, as I've explored this parable, first of all, as always, I feel like I need to say there are no easy answers and I don't have a right answer. That is the beauty and sometimes the frustration of the parables of Jesus. There's no one way to read them. We read them one day and we hear something and then we read them the next day and we hear something else. So it's always an invitation for you to dig into this parable and hear what God is saying to you. And to recognize on my part, I could be wrong. But as I studied this parable and prayed over it this week, I found a couple of things about this third servant that are examples of what not to do. In the first place, this third servant seems to have a misunderstanding of the character of the master. What we find out at the beginning of the parable is that this man is not only extremely, abundantly wealthy, but he's also very generous and trusting. You may remember that one talent is equal to 15 years' worth of wages of a day laborer. And so when he gives five talents to one of his servants, that's 75 years' worth of wages. So even the servant who just got one talent got 15 years worth of wages, and the master entrusts that money to these servants. He leaves it in their power, and then he goes away for a long time. It seems to me there is a relationship between him and these servants that is based on trust. And the other two servants seem to understand that. Both of them return when the master returns and they say, look, we've doubled what you gave us. It takes a lot to double your investment. They must have been out in the world taking great risks, but they must have known that they could, that somehow there was enough trust that their master had in them and they had in him that they could take those great risks. And at least they were trying. And so when they return, having doubled their investment, the master doesn't take it from them. He commends them and says, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful in a few things. A few things? Wow. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into my joy. Perhaps saying, come and sit at my table, come and become more like family than servant. There seems to be a shift in the relationship. But the third servant doesn't experience that. When he comes before the master at the master's return, he spews out right away what he thinks the master's character is like. Sir, I knew you to be a harsh man and to reap where you did not sow and to take things that weren't yours. Is he implying, by the way, that anything that he might have earned with his one talent should have belonged to him? Would he have been resentful of the master for taking back the work that he'd done and claiming it as his own? And so, since I knew you were cruel and selfish and harsh, I buried your talent in the ground. I just left it there. I did nothing. I sat on it now here's what is yours. I think his first mistake is misunderstanding the character of the master. It is he who brought into this relationship mistrust and suspicion and fear and misunderstanding. But his graver mistake, I believe, was doing nothing taking no risks burying the talent in the ground walking away it seems that that above all is what he is condemned for and that's where i feel deeply convicted by this parable you mean to say that that he's condemned just for just for doing nothing for taking no risks Surely, surely we can't be condemned for for just playing it safe and, and watching out for our own security and not taking risks. So I turned to John Wesley for some help. And he was no help at all. What he says at the beginning of his commentary on this passage is, as we read this story, we need to ask, what will become of those who do no harm? Honest, inoffensive, good sort of people. At the end of the parable, he says, So, mere harmlessness on which many build their hope of salvation was the cause of this man's condemnation. Hmm. There's something in this parable that urgently calls out for the disciples of Jesus Christ to be risk takers, to lay everything on the line for the sake of the gospel, to be willing to place ourselves in harm's way in order to take a stand for love and justice and mercy and grace. This parable is not about money, per se. It is more about the blessings, the abundant grace and mercy and love that we have received from an incredibly, extravagantly generous and loving God. And do we take that gift that we have received and sit on it and do nothing to share it with the world? Take no risks to build a world that is more loving and more just and more merciful for all of God's children? How is God calling you? How is God calling me to step out and take a risk for the sake of love. I've thought of some examples to share. I love the story of Bishop Oscar Romeo in El Salvador. If you've never seen the movie Romero, I urge you to see it. He started off as, as a, an Orthodox priest, just sort of maintaining the status quo in El Salvador until his best friend was murdered. And he began to open his heart and his eyes to the suffering of the poor around him. He began to preach about the sin of oppressing the poor. He began to take a stand for human rights in El Salvador. And he was assassinated for his risk-taking. I could talk about those brave civil rights activists here in Nashville who sat in at lunch counters all across the city who were beaten and spat upon and dragged into jail, some of our church members alongside them. I could think of all sorts of examples to share. But how are you called to step out and take a risk? It may be something as simple as speaking a word of truth to someone with whom you're in a relationship. Taking that risk It may mean taking the risk of sharing your faith with someone and what God has meant to you. It may mean taking a stand when someone makes an offensive joke and saying, that's not funny, or taking a stand against unjust policies in the company you work in. This congregation has opportunities to take a stand and take a risk. I was so excited this past week at the ministry table meeting. We were invited by the law firm Bassberry & Sims, where Mr. Sims is one of our church members, and they have been working on a case for the Tennessee Supreme Court that would argue against punishing juveniles with life in prison. Right now in the state of Tennessee, a juvenile can be convicted of a crime and be ineligible for parole for 51 years. We prayed about that and felt that that was unjust and so we agreed to be one of the faith communities that signs on to that amicus brief to the court, taking a stand for what is right and the the loving treatment of all God's children. Our church, now our ministry table leaders, have made the decision to change our wedding policy so that any member of this congregation can be married in this church In spite of our denomination's current policies, we are stepping out and taking that risk for the sake of love and justice and mercy. This parable calls us to be risk takers for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel. And it might help to remember when Jesus told this parable. He was about to risk everything for the sake of love. In just a few verses, he will be arrested and crucified. He is about to give his very life for the kingdom of God. With a Lord and master like that, how can we not risk everything for his sake and for the sake of the love he died and rose to give to the world? Amen.